Hello, I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with the Moving Target. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC, AAPA, and AMAPRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the Claim Credit button on the webinar console. Otherwise, please go to covid19.dkbmed.com, navigate to our multi-specialty episodes, and select the webinar to claim credit. Today's learning objective is to describe changes to NIH treatment recommendations for people with mild to moderate COVID-19 at high risk for progression. This educational activity is supported by independent medical educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated, as well as in-kind support from DKB Med. With us today, we have Dr. Paul Lawater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Allwater, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much, Faith. And I think many of us are breathing a sigh of relief that in many parts of the country, the numbers of uh, newly infected patients, patients in hospital with COVID-19 have uh, decreased dramatically. So you'll see that many uh, localities are dropping their mask mandates and so on. But of course, um, the virus is still quite present. There are some changes that might be important for you and your patients to know about in clinical practice. Uh, and certainly uh, the virus is still quite prevalent uh, and uh, likely we'll be seeing cases uh, through the spring to some degree. Uh, so I think it's important to highlight these uh, for you. Uh, as many of you were aware, back in December with the initial Omicron surge, there was such a crunch because the monoclonal antibodies we were relying on, such as uh, casirivimab and divimab and bamlanivimab and uh, really fell to the wayside because of lack of activity. And the excitement about new oral antivirals um, generated a lot of interest, especially with the Paxlovid product. However, that was in such limited supply that there were scrambles to really try to target antibodies with effectiveness, which boil down to just one, citrovimab, which you can see here on the chart from HHS, which was issued in late December. And most of the activity recently regarding uh, new or updated drug recommendations fall to the left part of this slide uh, in mild to moderate outpatient therapy or for prevention, which we have uh, uh, discussed in prior webinars. Uh, the NIH has uh, issued, based on available data, sort of graded recommendations uh, with Paxlovid at the top, followed by the monoclonal citrovimab by intravenous infusion, then three days of remdesivir, and finally the oral uh, nucleoside analog molnupiravir bringing up the rear, uh, mainly because that last drug uh, seemed to be the least effective in clinical trials. So uh, there certainly has been a change, but logistically, uh, it's really only uh, number one, the Paxlovid, which probably has the efficacy and the ease of administration. And although citrovimab supplies have improved, uh, there's still uh, perhaps not been as uh, widespread availability as it was uh, previously when we had more 
monoclonal antibody products. So I think uh, in recognition of the shortfall uh, with monoclonal antibodies that are active against the Omicron variant, uh, last week, the FDA gave emergency use approval to bebtelovimab, uh, a new monoclonal directed just like the others uh, against the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2, and much like others, has very similar indications uh, really for adolescents and adults weighing at least 40 kilos who have at least one risk factor for progressing to severe COVID-19, but who are outpatients. Now, um, this monoclonal does have activity against the Omicron variant, which we'll talk about in a moment. But unlike earlier monoclonals, there's really very limited data available, in part because this uh, monoclonal was administered with an older uh, combination, bamlanivimab, etisivimab, in a number of phase one, two, trials, but uh, its activity is a single monoclonal. We really have limited data. And you can see from a phase two trial, which was mainly done for safety, uh, the uh, new monoclonal beptelivimab uh, was given to 100 patients or bamlanivimab atisivimab in 50, most of whom had high risk. On average, people had about four and a half days of symptoms. So uh, a bit later than uh, we saw in some of the earlier trials. And some of the patients actually had already received some uh, vaccine. The secondary endpoints, though, were the typical hospitalization or death by day 28. And there we just have very little, little data where uh, the single new monoclonal had uh, three people who were hospitalized or died. That's 3%. Uh, the combination product had 4%, and there was one death in the single monoclonal alone. There was a little bit of other data from other uh, aspects of phase two trials, either open label, where the monoclonal was combined as above, or in a low-risk population, which is really not where this is targeted. Uh, the expectation is the safety of this monoclonal is very similar. Uh, and of course, uh, because the drug does seem to work in uh, vitro based on test, I think the FDA made the calculation that this will likely perform as other effective monoclonals as long as they have activity. Now, we're, there may be some issues that I think we don't quite yet know how to handle is really with some of the subvariants that um, have uh, derived from uh, the original Omicron variant. And uh, one in particular going by the name of BA.2 has uh, 20 different mutations from um, the earlier variant. And there's no way to really distinguish this without sequencing. So in real time practice, we really don't know what people have. It has spread worldwide in many countries. In fact, in Denmark has a substantial number of people with this particular infection. Now, it doesn't seem more virulent and sequencing data from the United States shows in the pink that um, BA.2 is uh, just a small percentage at this time compared to uh, the Omicron variants in the darker purple colors, which certainly have completely replaced uh, Delta in the orange since uh, late December. So uh, whether this has impact and whether it will grow um, remains to be seen. The WHO has not uh, separated this out as a separate variant of concern. It's just under the uh, Omicron uh, umbrella at this time. 
But there, there are some nuances because of the changes in the spike protein in this subvariant. And uh, in this uh, uh, paper, which is a preprint uh, that uh, is from China, looked uh, uh, at um, neutralizing uh, uh, effectiveness of these drugs uh, relative to the original Wuhan strain. And what you can see is citrovimab, which has been now uh, the preferred monoclonal antibody, does have some reduction uh, against BA.2, uh, whereas bebtelovimab appears to not be uh, affected at all, really. It's the only monoclonal. And uh, I think uh, for relative worth, it should be noted that uh, we get concerned when you see in the many hundreds or thousandfold reduction in activity, which of course is what we've seen with Omicron with um, the Regeneron product or uh, the other Eli Lilly, the bamlanivimab, eptisivimab product. Uh, but we haven't seen with citrovimab and, and does not appear to be the case with uh, bebtilovimab. So um, I think if there were both drugs available and it's not clear that they're in the hands of um, our distribution centers yet, but may soon be, if you did have a very high risk patient, um, there may be a potential preference for this new monoclonal marginally, uh, but citrovimab probably should work as well. Now, there have also been some changes in immunizations, and this is, uh, I think, been confusing to many patients, and it's often hard to stay on top of these recommendations. But I think the, the few key ones I would want to mention were highlighted in a recent CB, CDC uh, broadcast, and that is uh, for our severely immunocompromised populations, which have always had three doses of an mRNA vaccine as part of the primary series with a booster. The, the booster, the dose number four, was recommended at five months, but there does seem to be waning immune responses by month four, at least in the general population and probably sooner in the severely immune compromised. So the revised guidance now are people are now eligible for boosters uh, three months after an mRNA vaccine. So looking at the immunization schedule for the mRNA vaccines in the immunocompromised population, you have your first, second, and third doses, which should be characterized as a primary series. Uh, the booster doses now are three months after dose number three. Uh, that's the minimum there. Um, now, for those who have received the Janssen vaccine, remember that uh, booster dose was recommended earlier, and this should be an mRNA vaccine, unless if it's contraindicated, uh, because people have much uh, better enhancement of their antibody responses with uh, an mRNA following the Janssen vaccine. The booster dose now here for those who have received Janssen is at least two months after that additional dose. Uh, so this is where there's still the primary series is one dose if you can find it. Um, and then there are additional doses. Now, uh, there is a new vaccine, uh, the Novavax, which uh, is going to be uh, applying for EUA approval. And, and this probably will be the alternative vaccine for those uh, that may be wary of the mRNA vaccines. And we'll, we'll be speaking more about that uh, as we get closer or if there's EUA approval. Uh, another was a common question that I had always been fielded is when to get a 
booster or a vaccine after you had COVID or you received monoclonal antibodies, for example, it used to be, oh, you should wait 90 days. There's really no rationale, I thought, because we used to uh, give immune, uh, immunization and immunoglobulin together for rabies or hepatitis B. So the revised guidance now is no uh, deferral period. You can get immunized. That is uh, probably better to capture uh, people at hand. Um, but if you are using uh, the Tixagivimab, Silagivimab, and that's the uh, so-called pre-exposure prophylaxis product, you're supposed to wait at least two weeks in that particular circumstance uh, before immunization. So Faith, um, that's all I have for this week uh, in terms of updates, but I know there are a couple of questions we have. Yes, there are. Um, and the first one here is, do you suspect that changes will be made to the interval between mRNA vaccine doses for younger people? So the whole issue of uh, immunizations for the under five crowd, uh, I think the move has been good. Um, Pfizer has withdrawn their uh, application awaiting more data. Um, whether there'll be changes in terms of uh, separating the doses out longer or uh, for a three-dose series, especially um, uh, for uh, some in this age range, I think remains to be seen. It's likely uh, uh, none of the trials are nearly as extensive as we've seen in other population subsets, such as adults. So I think waiting for more data uh, makes some sense. Um, and whether there'll be uh, changes, I think, are, are, are likely, uh, but luckily they'll be data-driven rather than uh, anticipating, for example, that there might be a third dose required. Great. Thank you for that. Um, and our next question, why is B2 considered a subvariant and not a new variant? Yeah, Faith, I, I am not a, a virologist that's living and breathing uh, these designations. Uh, it's still under the Omicron umbrella variant of concern. It considered a subvariant because it's thought to be perhaps derived from the original Omicron variant, uh, even though it's uh, substantially different enough, as we just talked about, where some monoclonal antibodies are not recognizing it in similar fashion. Uh, I think because it may not be behaving differently in terms of the larger universe of vaccine responses or virulence, it's sort of living as a subvariant rather than being pulled out as something different. Um, this perhaps will change if it becomes increasingly prevalent um, and, and maybe uh, identified in of itself. It does seem to be just as infectious, even if not more infectious and transmissible uh, than uh, the original Omicron. So uh, we'll see what happens over the next few months. Okay, thank you again for those updates, Dr. Alwater. Yeah, thank you, Faith. And uh, I hope this was helpful uh, to you all. And I also hope that we're seeing fewer and fewer cases of COVID-19 among our patients. Uh, but there's still opportunities uh, to improve our practices and for those that are infected, hopefully uh, get the best available care. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the Claim Credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit us at covid19.dkbmed.com. Again, thank you for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.